Turn and join me, if you would, in your Bibles or the bulletin. Acts chapter 6. We'll finish chapter 6 today. 6, 8 through 15. I'm sorry, I'm rushing things along. (laughs) Acts 6, 8 through 15 this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we do doubt. We wonder, uh, are we really following the way of truth at times? And we feel the pressures all around us and wonder if it might not be easier just to give in. Will you, by your word, together with the Holy Spirit, shore up our faith this morning, attest to us the truth of life lived as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, confirm for us a confidence that the way of Christ is the only way, for he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no way to the Father but through him. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Stand, if you would, for the reading of the word. Again, Acts 6, 8 through 15. By the way, I'm the world's most phonetic speller, and the name Stephen spelled Stephen just gets me. So if I say that, in my defense, there is no V in Greek, no V sound. It's Stephen in Greek. Nevertheless, I'll try to say Stephen, because I know that's how we pronounce it in English. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will cause the customs that Moses delivered to us. Change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. You may be seated. In an article from The Atlantic from a few years ago, David Graham criticized President Obama for his persistent use of the phrases the right side of history and the wrong side of history. And he quotes from an Oval Office address on the terrorism uh, on terrorism that Obama was giving as an example where he said, My fellow Americans, I am confident we will succeed in this mission because we are on the right side of history. Now here's Graham's critique of these ideas. The problem with this kind of thinking is that it imputes an agency to history that doesn't exist. Worse, it assumes that progress is unidirectional. But history is not a moral force in and of itself, and it 
has no set course. Now, obviously, I do not share many of President Obama's specific ideals, but I do share something of his his idealism, and that I disagree completely with Graham. There most definitely is an agency to history, a divine agency guiding history. And progress is unidirectional. We heard this morning from H.B. Charles, for from him and through him and to him are all things, is the summary of history of the world. History does have a set course. The course of history is leading up to one great king and his kingdom set on eternal pillars. So I don't, I don't mind the phrases wrong side of history, right side of history. In preparing for this sermon, I struggled with how best to frame the discussion because it, it may be difficult for us to wrap our heads around the practical significance of an ancient debate about the temple and the law of Moses and, and the Jews in Jerusalem. I borrow from John Piper and remind us that, for one thing, a man, a godly man, died for the truths that we're talking about here. Stephen died. He chose martyrdom over these truths. And likewise, the Jewish leaders were willing and ready to kill over these truths. So they must be significant for us. But why? Why, did, why was it so important to them and why should it be important to us? And because, it's because the debate has to do with who is on the right side of history or, to put it another way, who is on God's side of history. So what I want to do with the message this morning is examine how God proved Stephen and proved the church to be on God's side of history. And also to consider how can we be encouraged and assured that we're not simply misguided fanatics as Christians. So the first affirmation I want to consider this morning is uh, the branching of the kingdom. The branching of the kingdom. In Matthew, Jesus said, Matthew 13 31 through 32, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the kingdom of heaven starts small and grows big. That's the idea. If you remember from last week, the church was growing at such a rapid rate that the Hellenistic Jews were being passed over. The widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being passed over in the daily distribution of food and of money. The Hellenists complained, rightly so, and the church selected uh, men and the apostles appointed men full of wisdom and faith in the spirit to oversee the daily distribution so that the apostles could continue in the ministry of word and and prayer, that they were liberating the ministry of word and prayer. The Hellenists, again, they were Greek-speaking Jews who had moved to Jerusalem. They didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They had their own synagogues, and and they were really kind of a distinct sort of ethnicity in Jerusalem. 
And when they complained, who did the church appoint? Hellenists. You complain, you do it, right? They appointed appointed Hellenists. If you look back, all the names are Greek names. They're not Hebrew names. So now, within the Hellenistic segment of the church, who would be the obvious leaders? The men who received the commendation of the church and, and, and the authority of the apostles, appointed by the apostles. So Stephen, Luke tells us, was full of grace and power. What would a person full of grace look like in your mind? Like an angel. Like an angel. (laughs) I think of a person who has experienced great grace would also be a very gracious person. Grace being the unmerited favor of God. And Stephen, like all of us, who know Christ and get to be a part of Christ's family, has grace upon grace upon grace. A fountain of grace that then overflows from his life and into his ministry. And we'll see in the next chapter, graciousness does not always equal niceness. We make that mistake very often in our day. But Stephen and his ministry were filled with the grace of God. So that it was, it was powerful and it was fruitful. And it was scary to the opponents. Luke says also that he was full of power. This is kind of a tip-off, a buzzword from Luke. He's telling us that this man, Stephen, was on the right path. He was on the right course. He was on God's side of history, if you will. Why is that? Because back in Acts 1.8, Jesus promised, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Stephen was preaching and teaching among the Hellenistic church. And he was doing great signs and wonders. And his preaching inflamed opposition. And that opposition comes from the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic synagogues. In verse 9, the synagogue of the freedmen, which is freed Roman slaves, so probably Greek-speaking slaves and of the Cyrenians, and of Alexandrians, those of Cilicia and Asia. These are not Palestinian cities or or areas. These are Gentile areas, Hellenistic areas. So this is the synagogues of the Hellenists that are inflamed. So the early church was like kind of the sprout of the mustard seed. It was growing, it was shooting up quick, it was was a... um, Spacing on the word. Anyways, it was like a tender shoot racing up out of the ground. And at this point in Acts, we see the seedling begin to branch, begin to spread its branches. The spread of the Great Commission is growing. It's still in Jerusalem, but it's going from Hebrew of Hebrews out to the Hellenists. It's the trajectory is starting to point more and more outward. We see the branching of the mustard bush. which is an encouragement on a number of levels. First of all, the Great Commission is being fulfilled. It's happening from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's going out. Also, we see here men other than the apostles were being used. Stephen, Philip, 
the gospel was going out and it wasn't completely dependent on this little band of apostles, which is encouraging for us because we have the word of the apostles, which Stephen did too and he preached. But we don't have the apostles. How can the kingdom go forward in Newcastle, Colorado without apostles? Well, here we see it it went forward with Stephen. Also, we see that the risen, ascended Lord is clearly with his church. He's gone, but he's not absent. The church continues to advance. So it's all happening here. It's really happening. King Jesus is expanding his kingdom. And we can have confidence then that we are not some misguided cult of fanatics. The kingdom went global just as Jesus predicted and as he commanded. And it's in that kingdom that we continue to live and work as citizens. The second affirmation here is actually from the opposition itself. In opposition, in the book of Acts, comes affirmation. So opposition and affirmation. We've been, as we go through Acts, we read this sort of back and forth story, a battle between Christ and the forces of evil. As Christ and his church take take one step forward, the forces of evil flame up and they try to push down the church. And every time they do that, every time they try to impede progress, Christ beats them back. Every time in the book of Acts. He wins the victory. He crushes the advance of the enemy. We can be encouraged because affirmation always follows opposition. And opposition in this instance comes in two forms. uh, Debate first and then dishonesty. And then we'll see next week a third form of opposition is murder. Debate, dishonesty, and murder. So the debate, Stephen's opponents kind of tried diplomatic debate first. They try to argue him out of his beliefs. His message about Jesus sounds different from the familiar Jewish narrative. And people don't like when we say things that don't fit their narrative. So they debate with him. It says in verse 9, And some of those who belonged to the synagogues rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't out-argue Stephen. He had a precise and biblical answer for every argument. It says in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of the disciple imitating his master. Stephen looks like Jesus here. Remember in the Gospels at one point it says, and no one dared ask him any more questions about Jesus. Not only is Stephen like Jesus, but he's living in the promises of Jesus. We see these promises, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke 12.11-12 And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
And then again in Luke 21:15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. So what a promise that is. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. I wonder if we cling to that promise. I don't think I do. I think I rely on my own mouth and my own wisdom. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom and none of you, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So as you're trying to apply this passage to your daily life, I want, I want us to discern or try to discern, put ourselves in, in Theophilus's shoes, the recipient of this, this history. How would he understand what Luke is saying here and recording. Remember, he's, he's, imagine you're reading it for the first time like he did. You've already read all of Luke and, and this, up to this point in Acts. And in Acts 1, when the risen Christ departs and goes into heaven at the ascension, the question is kind of, will he really take care of us? Will he be with us to the end of the age like he promised? Will he really establish a heavenly kingdom even though he's floating away into the clouds? But you tell me when you read of Stephen, full of grace and power and of the Spirit, doing great and mighty wonders, preaching Christ, no one able to withstand his wisdom and spirit, bearing witness to the Lord Jesus among the Hellenistic population, Christ is with his church. He is conquering all his and our enemies. And the very last verse of this passage, verse 15, is a very unusual and striking affirmation. Verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Um, What does that mean? Face of an angel. Some scholars say that Luke was speaking more of Stephen's countenance, his disposition. I think that's Calvin's view. Um, that despite great trials, the intimidation of the council and the dispute and, and probably pre- preparing mentally and internally for the sermon he was about to preach that was going to get him killed, despite all of that, he's kind of Stephen in the eye of the tornado, calm and graceful. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that his face was illumined or transfigured somehow, which to me seems like the more natural reading. Something like Moses after his encounter with God, um, which is funny because the whole debate is about Moses. And here is here is Stephen being possibly illumined or transfigured just like Moses was before the Sanhedrin, and they yet reject him. Either way, clearly God is with Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power. He has the favor of the Lord. Remember, in this setting, a Hellenistic Jew is not like the top tier person. And here he is before the Sanhedrin itself with the face of an angel. He has the favor of the Lord. So what an ongoing affirmation for us that that Christ has firmly established his church and continues to bless us by the same spirit that he gave Stephen.
And sometimes we read these, these grand and wonderful things, and sometimes we wrongly assume that we should be able to do all the things that they did, which is not necessarily true. But what is true is that we have the same spirit. We have the same grace and power here within us. Calvin said, Christ has promised the same spirit to all his servants. Let us only defend the truth faithfully. Let us crave speech and wisdom from him, and we shall be sufficiently furnished to speak, so that neither the wit, neither yet the babbling of our adversaries should be able to make us ashamed. Oh. Will Rogers said, Diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you can find a rock. It's fitting in this instance, isn't it? Stephen's opponents turn from debate, diplomacy, to attacks. John Stott said, When arguments fail, mud has often seemed to be an excellent substitute. So the second form of opposition here is dishonesty. Luke tells us that they secretly instigated men to lie about Stephen and they set up false witnesses. Uh, Craig Keener said that some ancient rhetorical handbooks that taught public speakers how to win court cases explicitly instructed them how to prepare false witnesses to be persuasive. I've never been very fond of arguing Myself. Not because I don't see the value. I think there's a lot of value in hearty debate and a quest for truth. I just find it so often or so rare that people are clear when they argue or logical or not injecting emotion into argument. It's so rare. I maybe have had ten of those arguments in my whole life. Instead, we'll use any means not to express truth, but to win a fight. But that's not winning. (laughs) The people who want to do that always want to win. They're competitive, but they're losing. These people, they'll do anything just to get rid of Stephen. They don't care about whether they're right or wrong in the eyes of God. They have become gods in their own mind, doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's easy to be on the right side of history when you're inventing history for yourself, isn't it? That's the problem with Graham's quote from earlier. If if history has no agency or set course, if there's no defined purpose, then each man sets his own course. And each one is fine. Stevens is fine. The Sanhedrin's is fine. Gandhi's is fine, Stalin's is fine, America's is fine, the Taliban's is fine, yours is fine, mine is fine, it's all fine. Even if our courses conflict incompatibly, it's all just fine. But whatever it takes, right or wrong, these men are going to get rid of Stephen. Why do they hate Stephen so much? But you remember from last week, and back in verse 7, it said, The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
This, this gospel of Jesus Christ was creeping into their territory. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The way of, of Christ was beginning to outpace the traditional Jewish narrative. It was even impacting the priesthood. Devout Jews, even priests, were being convinced that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that there'd be some changes to their traditions, indeed major changes into the form of their religion. I mean, that would be scary. That would be scary for us, wouldn't it? Especially if you were like those like in the council in the Sanhedrin whose power and influence was dependent on those forms of religion. You can see why they just hated Stephen with a seething hatred. So we see here the affirmation of Stephen and the church in these feeble attempts of Christ's opponents to attack the kingdom of Christ. They can argue, they can bear false witness. As we'll see next time, they can even murder. But they cannot stamp out the truths of Christianity. No matter how hard they try. Remember that. It's it's not the healings and not the good things that Stephen was doing among the people that got him into hot water. It was his doctrine. The same is true for us. We could be ridiculed, despised, castigated as bigots and backwards fundies or whatever. We could even be killed, but we would not lose. Because the kingdom of Christ is not a kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom based in geography, but in truth and in power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All who believe it will be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. A kingdom that consists in a message and a people, not a place. And whatever happens to us personally, the message will persist. Christ will build His church. Which leads us to the final affirmation, which... I'm calling the core of human existence knowing God. Knowing God. The whole debate really comes down to a question of methodology, in a sense, doesn't it? This may be a bit simplistic, but but you can see what I mean. The question is, how do we know God? How do we worship God? Do we know God by means of a temple and a priesthood and rules and regulations? Or do we know Him through Jesus Christ, the Mediator, who is God in flesh, now interceding for us at the Father's right hand? I mean, it sounds obvious when I put it that way. But, but in the moment, it's so easy for, for us to be captivated by the shadow rather than the substance. When light shines onto an object, you can see the shadow is cast onto the floor. For all of human history, Jesus, until Jesus, the the shadow was being cast. There was always something, something wonderful or someone glorious, somewhere unseen, but casting a shadow. Everybody knew it was there, they could see the shape of it, and it gave them hope, it gave them something to believe in. 
But when the source of the shadow arrived, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, some of the people had grown so attached to the shadow that they rejected the substance. We like the shadow. The temple, the temple was a representation of God with the people. And now Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was here in flesh. He's the new temple. But we want to keep the temple of stone, the, the shadow. The priesthood, the priesthood prefigured one who, who could actually represent men before God. The sinless priest, the spotless sacrifice. When Jesus came, these things became unnecessary. It's not that they ceased to exist. It's that they exist now in their fullness, in the substance. The shadow itself never did anything. It was just there to tell us there was someone there doing something. These are the kinds of messages I think Stephen was preaching and that inflamed the Hellenistic Jews. You can tell this is what he was preaching because of the way his teachings are being twisted. Verses 11 through 14 again. If we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You can tell something of what Stephen was preaching had to do with Moses and the law and Jesus and the temple. Now some of the things that these people are saying were at least partially true. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to tear down the temple. But he did say that he was the temple. And he said, tear down this temple and in three days... I will raise it up, speaking of his body. And he did. One day he prophesied that, tem- that the temple would be torn down. In Mark 13, 1 and 2, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Fulfilled, obviously, in A.D. 70 with the Romans. Likewise, Jesus did not say that the law was annulled. He said in Matthew 5:17 and 18, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. But he also made clear that righteousness through the law, earning favor before God by the law, was an impossibility. When he said in the Sermon on the Mount that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous men in the land, you have to do better than them. It's an impossibility. And he did make changes to the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses. Uh, for example, Mark seven, eighteen and 19. And he said to them, "Then you also, without under, are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since he enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark adds a, a comment here. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus did change the law. Civil and ceremonial law. Now, as the devil is inclined to do, the enemies of Stephen and of Jesus take the truths that are in the word of God and they twist them. They don't outright reject them. They just twist them. But the subtle difference between the whole truth and the partial truth is the not so subtle difference between the shadow and the substance and between life and death. See how the powerful that, that twisting of the Word of God is. I like to watch this guy on, on YouTube. He's an engineer, and he builds all these things like a basketball hoop that when you shoot, no matter how you shoot, it moves, and it always makes it, or a dartboard that does the same. And he recently did one with a bow and arrow where it straps to his arm, and it can move up and down and right and left. The bow and arrow is very precise, and his goal was to shoot a little apple off a Lego man to be that precise or to shoot targets like this out of the air. And, and he did that and he was commenting on the difference between this arm and this arm has to be within just millimeters or you're off, right? It's the same with the truth of God. You can twist it just a little bit and it's just a little bit here, but down there you miss the target entirely. The shadows cannot save. The substance saves. Jesus saves. As fallen men and women, we're we're naturally inclined toward trying to earn our standing before God. If we just do the right things, if we just try our best, if we make every effort before God, He'll understand and He'll just take us in, right? But as the Valley of Vision says... When we do that, we commend our own dunghill. We are prostitutes in a white wedding gown. The problem is we're not able to make ourselves righteous or peer through good works. No matter how hard we try, we try to make ourselves pretty before God. We, we try through sacrifices of animals, through fasting, through, through good deeds done to our neighbor. We try all these things, but the truth is we come to know God not, not by earning our righteousness, but by coming through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Grace upon grace, pure, unmerited favor. He stooped to become a man like us. He came and fulfilled the law of Moses on our behalf. He came in flesh to be the temple, to be God with us, Emmanuel. He came to die a cursed death, to pay for our sins and to bring us with him into the presence of God. If we repent of our sins and believe in him, we will be transferred from the eternal kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From, from the family of Adam to the family of God. We will be made members of an eternal kingdom. 
All of history leads to this one final day when the devil will finally be cast down and saints will be wearing white robes cleansed with the blood of Christ. We will enter our eternal rest. And King Jesus will have won his victory and he will have his bride. That's the course of history. So indeed, I believe there is a right side of history and a wrong side. If you believe in Jesus and take up your cross and follow him, uh, take heart. You're not a misguided fanatic. Jesus has been testifying to that throughout the whole course of history. You are on the right side. You are on the side of King Jesus. All glory be to him. Amen.